Today's sermon builds upon last week's. They're both from a large section. Last week's sermon, if you remember, began with this wonderful prophecy of a day of the Lord when God alone um, will be delighted in above all the other gods, um, and that that people from all nations will flow up to the mountain of the Lord, which is lifted high above all the other mountains. And after that, Isaiah begins this long section of woe, (laughs) and it continues on into our passage this morning. We begin with a long passage where God says he will take away, listen, all the blessings that they have been taken, taking for granted. But then after all this loss, there will be a glorious gain. Today our passage ends with a spectacular prophecy of the coming of the Messiah who will cleanse and purify the people of God. God will allow his people to lose it all so that they may return to him with great trust and devotion. Now, let me ask you, do you have a category for God in which he brings loss so that in the end we experience glorious gain? Our passage is Isaiah 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 6. For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skilled magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable." For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because of their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sins like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruits of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. 
In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, and armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and amulets, the signet rings, and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Now, though, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, and over her assemblies a cloud by day, and a smoke and a shining flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God's will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. The poetry is amazing. Um, help us to make light of it. Help us to press it into our lives. May we be rebuked by it where necessary, um, and may we rejoice in the day of the Lord to come, we pray. Amen. You know, you don't have to be a gym rat to have heard the phrase, no pain, no gain, right? And it's certainly true. If you want your muscles to be built up, you must live heavy and hard to the point of pain. Now, the difference between weight trainers and the children of God is that the weight trainers purposely seek out the pain, for they seek a greater glory, a really nice chiseled body. But let me ask you, when was the last time you said to God, I want to gain a greater devotion to you, so please bring on some devastating pain into my life because you know no pain, no gain. We don't typically say those things, do we? We like to think that God only has interest in our happiness. But thankfully, God cares more about our holiness than our happiness. God cares more about his vision for the world than ours. Which is why at times God brings pain into the lives of his people, for through loss comes gain. God is good to do this. We see it in our passage. Isaiah prophesies that there's a day coming when the entire society of his, of his contemporaries will collapse and people will live in utter desperation. 
the big idea we need to see this morning is this, that God is good to bring loss so that in the end there is glorious gain. We're going to divide our time under two headings. First, we're going to look at the loss of stability and opulence, and then we will focus on the gain of beauty and glory. First, the loss of stability and opulence. In the first large section, Isaiah foretells of a desperation to come upon God's people. Now, before we get to the why, let's look at the what. What is going to happen? Now, remember against the backdrop of what Isaiah has already spoken, we've come to see that God laments how his people have turned God into a good luck charm. And not even their favorite good luck charm. He's just one of many. The people have resisted the relevancy of God in all of life. They wanted God's acceptance without God's transformation. God was the God of last resort. Their wish was to keep God at arm's length while they chased after earthly gain. Sounds a lot like today. So be careful what you wish for. If you keep wishing to hold God at arm's length, he may withdraw his arm of blessing from you. That is what Isaiah says is coming. Society is about to go to hell in a handbasket, and it is the Lord who does it to his own people. Verse 1, chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts. The Hebrew word hosts here is sabaoth. The verbal form means to, to go to war or to wage battle. The people, listen, are going to find out what it's like to no longer have the Lord battle for them, but against them. What does Isaiah say the Lord will do? Oh my gosh, plenty. In verse 1, he says that God will take away their stability. And then down in verse 18, where he goes into the women and their finery, he says he will take away their opulence or finery. First, the loss of stability. We see this in verse 1, where we read God is taking away his support and supply. For behold, the Lord of of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, counselors and skilled musicians and experts in charm. See what God is doing here? He's taking away all stability, all support, all supply. God's daily provision to which we pray, give us our daily bread, will dry up. There will be no more strong leaders who can shepherd the people through a crisis. The Lord will take away all military-aged men from the rank of general all the way down to private, along with all the judges and prophets and elders and counselors. My friends, every society needs wise leaders to lead a nation, do they not? And here they will be gone. God is saying all hell is going to break loose upon this land, and you will have no one reliable to turn to. Instead, look who's left. Verse 4, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. Not good. Not good. Look at the result in verse 5. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Anarchy, despair, injustice, spiraling out of control. Why? Why did this happen? 
Short answer, if you know the big picture of God's story, God told his people before they went into the promised land that he would be their God, that he would fight their battles, that he would provide the stability that they need. But if they turned from God and worshiped other gods instead of the, their creator, then he would spit them out of the land. That's the language he used. And I'm sorry to say, that's what happened. First, the Assyrian Empire that had been that it overran the northern kingdom. They began to escalate their battles against the southern kingdom of Judah. And then eventually the Babylonians took them into captivity around 586 BC. What Isaiah says here that God would do, he did. But why did he do it? See in verse eight and nine that, that the people brought this calamity upon themselves. Verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are what? Are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sins like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. For they have brought evil on themselves. Their lives were against everything good that the Lord had called them to. Their speech and their deeds and all their actions were contrary to God's goodness. Instead of humility and repentance, they boasted about their sins. These ancient people of God wanted God's acceptance, his blessings, but without transformation. And it's true, right? We too can live this way living pretend lives, saying we're God's people, but not really living that way. You know, there's nothing worse than a boss or a coworker or a friend who gives you only lip service and fakes it. You think they're close and they're, they've got your back. But at some point, what, the excuses pile up and the veneer wears off. You, you see them as they're only in it for themselves, right? And then there comes a time when you say, no more, no more. That's what God does here. Let that sink in. God says, no more, my people. I must bring you through great loss. That's all that's left for me to do. The Lord ends this section with a proclamation of judgment in verse 12 through 15. I'm just going to read it without making any comment. Let it sink in. And it's a lament, remember? Oh, oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. That's the first section there. The next section, the Lord says, in addition to taking away your stability, I will also take away your opulence. In our text, the word is finery. God isn't against finery. All right, you can wear nice clothes and have some jewelry. God isn't against those things. 
Listen up, especially if you're younger. The problem lies when we seek to find our identity and happiness in the things we wear, the things we buy. So we feel like on the outside we can tell the world everything's fine, right? A lot of times you'll learn it from our parents. <laughs> problem lies when we seek to find our identity and happiness in things, when instead God would clothe us with an undeserved righteousness and a glory of his presence within us. But we can mask over our great spiritual shortcomings behind the fading glory of a Chanel purse. I've told this story before, and it bears repeating. When my eldest daughter was about six or seven, she wanted Ugg boots like her friends. We got her the Target knockoffs instead. One day, listen, one day she took out a Sharpie pen to write on the back of the soles of her boots. I caught her and I asked her, what are you doing? Her reply brought me to tears. I'm going to write the word Ugg on them. Man. Ever since the fall, we humans, if we, we seek to adore ourselves with finery to cover our shame and somehow elevate our identity, be it fig leaves or Ugg boots or Versace. But our Heavenly Father wishes for us to delight in him above all things. See, he desires to adorn his children with an inner beauty and blessings but we prefer the store-bought variety. In Isaiah, there was great display of opulence, but no inner beauty. God says, I will take it away. Is God right to do that? I think so. Look at verse 18 to 23. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, my gosh, they had so many different things to put on. Okay, the finery of the anklets, the, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings. They had nose rings back then. The festal robes. And I thought it was just for like pink-haired baristas. All right. The mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mir mirrors, they're gone. The linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. I think that's an exhaustive list. I don't know. In verse 24, Isaiah says the word instead of five times. Really let this sink in. There's a huge contrast here. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-said hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding, that's kind of like burning of the skin instead of beauty. The image is stark. It's quite haunting, isn't it? I mean, if you let it all build up and sink in. How many times have you scrolled through a news feed or a website and, and you see one of those clickbait advertisements with the headline, something like this? Heart throbs, 20 heart throbs from the 80s. You won't believe what they look like now. You know what I'm talking about. Don't say you haven't clicked on that and gone all the way through to the end. 
Whether they were young men or young women, they once displayed an opulence that was enviable, desirable, but look at them now. Instead of well-set hair, baldness, instead of rich, fashionable wardrobes, coffee sack for a dress. Why did it happen to these women? Verse 16 makes it clear. Because the daughters of Zion were haughty and, and walked with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Those are the anklets, making noise as they walk. Here we see, every, here we see that everything about how the women carry themselves betrays a self-absorption. Everything they do is designed to capture attention. The posture, the flirtatious demeanor, the carefree skipping along, jingling their anklets. They did that to be noticed. Now, think this through. We, of all people who call the Hamptons our home, right? We know what this looks like, right? <laughs> we see this opulence that Isaiah talks about all summer long, although I think Isaiah might change. He might add one thing. He says, and strutting with Pomeranians under their arms. <laughs> I have nothing against Pomeranians. But we need to see it's not just them, it can be us too. The picture displayed by Isaiah is that the people of God, personified through the haughtiness of the women, have reached the end of God's patience. Now imagine if you were one of the few truly faithful people in Isaiah's day, and don't assume you would be, I can't assume that I would be. You'd be crying out, Lord, where are you? Why haven't you acted swiftly to purify your people? For the sake of your name and for your glory, do something. The Lord will. That's Isaiah's point. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. And in verses 25 through 41, Your men shall fall by the sword and your, sword and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Do you see how much pain the Lord will inflict upon this nation? Six out of seven military-aged men will fall by the sword. That's why there's seven women for one man. And in desperation, they, they all agree to marry so that the reproach of singleness is taken away. A couple of observations before moving on. There aren't enough adjectives in the English language to describe the extent of the pain and loss. God has taken away everything that the people leaned on instead of him. And you wouldn't even wish this on your worst enemy but these aren't God's enemies. They are his covenant people. The very people to whom God said, I will redeem you. I will carry you through all your trials and tribulations. I will be your God. You will be my people. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. Did you catch that? God has a mission for his people. Nothing short of worldwide blessing for all the nations. 
but the people are taking the blessing of God for granted. They took the gifts of God, which are meant to be blessings for others, and they fashioned comfortable lives, cut off from this great and glorious calling of their Redeemer. God loves his people. God is committed to his people. And so God allows decades of pain to prepare them for an eternal gain. God says there is great loss coming, but also when the pain has served its purpose, there will be glorious gain. We turn to that now. The gain of beauty and glory. God promised a day when magnificent beauty and glory would come upon his people. Isaiah concludes this long section with the glimpse into the future. The phrase, in that day, points the readers beyond the day of pain to the great gain. What will happen in that day? God says there will be survivors, a remnant, and they're going to be beautiful and glorious. Verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord God shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. See that? The survivors somehow experience spiritual revival along with beauty and glory. But instead of man-made beauty and glory, which their ancestors pursued, they will be ordained with beauty and glory from God himself. The fruit of the Lord will be their pride and honor. The days of haughtiness will be over. The glory and beauty comes to those who are left, the survivors. God promises a great gain to a remnant. When I hear the word remnant, I often think of carpet remnants. Back in my hometown of St. Louis, there's this woman named Becky. The, just Anyway, weird commercials. Uh, but she was a really large, <laughs> she like would fly on this magic carpet. And the, anyway, the graphics were horrible. Um, but anyway, huge carpet retailer, and they would advertise every like, two or three months, this giant remnant sale. Now, what were they selling? They're selling the leftovers. Like if they order like three giant rolls of carpet to install in a house, there'll be some small pieces left over, a remnant, maybe an eight by 10 and a four by 15, I don't know. Now, what can you do with a remnant? Not much. <laughs> Remnants have very little value. But in the right hands, listen, great things can happen and can be done with remnants. In our children's ministry, someone had donated some carpet remnants to the church, and we had the edges bound so that they wouldn't fray. And now they serve us well as a soft place for kids to learn of Christ and to play. In the right hands, a remnant can be valuable, right? God says that after the loss, the pain, there will, there will be what seems to be a worthless remnant. But look and see what God will do. Along with the amazing spiritual transformation in verse 3, well, let's look at it. And Verse 3, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem, remember those are cinnamon, cinnamon, I am so hungry, uh, synonyms, <laughs> not cinnamon. <laughs> anyway, um, see where my head is. Uh, these are synonyms, Zion and Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. There will be a remnant of survivors in Jerusalem, and they will be called holy, and their names will be written in God's book of life, the people of the redeemed. God has such a book. 
And how can this be? Because the Lord shall have washed away their shame and cleansed their sin. Look at verse 4. Oh, here we go. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its myths, how? By a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. First, please understand this. This is not God's people cleaning themselves up, right? This is the Lord's work. The phrase, by the spirit of judgment, speaks of divine justice being meted out. And the phrase, by the spirit of burning, speaks of a purification and a holiness that the Lord is working. Now, let me ask you a question. How is it that this remnant, how is it that they aren't consumed like the others who didn't survive? They were just as guilty, right? How is this possible? Well, listen and take great delight, because truthfully, no one can survive the judgment and the purification that we deserve. But here's the reality. The branch of the Lord and the fruit of the land point not to a people, but to a person. Throughout the Old Testament, the phrase branch of the Lord or branch of David or just branch, they're metaphors, not of people, but of a person, the coming Messiah of God, the anointed one, the Christ. And the fruit of the land points to the Messiah's human nature. So this passage is really about what? It's about what God will do through his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes. The branch, Jesus himself, shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors. And all who are left will acknowledge the beauty and glory, and they will experience his cleansing. They will be survivors because the branch of the Lord took the loss and the pain that they deserved. Because, because he is the one who endured the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning for them. You see that? Because of that, they will be made holy and have their names written in, in God's book of eternal life. If you look all the way in Revelation 22, you see that more than that, there's this beautiful day when we come to see that Jesus' own name is on our foreheads, written on us. And it's true. On the cross, Jesus bore the full brunt of the spirit of judgment as he endured God's wrath towards our sin. On the cross, Jesus bore the full brunt of the spirit of fire for the cleansing of God's people to make us holy. Listen, this is the gospel shining bright in the Old Testament. The branch of the Lord is the one who endured our pain, and through his loss comes our gain. Amazing, right? I'm not making this up. And after these promises to make his people holy and cleansed, one final, final promise remains. The Lord promises his presence in their lives to bless them once again. And whereas before they kept the Lord at arm's length, now he draws near them to bless. Look at the last two verses, five and six. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all of the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter 
from the storm at night. God is saying in this passage, listen, God is saying in this passage that he is moving down and he's moving in. (laughs) Isaiah's imagery reminds us of the Exodus, right? When God dwelt with them and led them as a cloud uh, uh, by the day of, 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 of smoke and a, and a flame at night. And God said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Verse 5 speaks of the day when God's glorious presence will cover his entire church and every local assembly that gathers. And unlike fear and trembling that those ancient Israelites experienced with God's presence in their midst, Verse 6 speaks of God's presence being a shelter and a refuge from the perils of life. You remember the trouble that we share with this ancient audience in Isaiah's message? Like them, we can foolishly live with God at arm's length. We like him around to bless us, but we don't want him getting too close that he messes with our selfish plans. We've all got side hustles we hope will succeed. This passage calls us to recognize our haughtiness. We must see how much greater it is to have the inner beauty only Christ can give us as we, what, abide in him. And we cannot abide in him while keeping him at arm's length. This passage also challenges us to see that when, that when God is in your life, he's all in. He won't settle for living down the block. My friends, can you see? The day of the branch of the Lord has come. It is beautiful and glorious. He is doing this to his people, making us beautiful and glorious in his sight. You know, I want to wrap up with one final thought. I think it'll help us to know how we can stop living with God at arm's length and and instead desire to abide in him and deeply allow him to transform us, right? We don't just want God's acceptance. We want his transformation. And sometimes that requires pain for the gain. If you remember how we began the sermon, it was no pain, no gain, right? You must lift heavy enough weights, hard enough, Right? I don't know. Those, those little rubber bands that they try to sell, I just don't know about those things. But anyway, heavy weights hard enough to where your muscles actually burn with pain, right? Now, let me ask you, which is the most important day when it comes to weight training? Is it the day you train when, when the pain comes, or is it the day after? Well, lifting weights and causing pain, it's important for muscle growth. But without a day of rest afterwards, there will be no gain. When people lift weights, microscopic damage, micro tears occurs to the myofibrils within the muscle fiber. These micro tears stimulate the body's repair response. The body delivers nutrients that flow to the muscle cells to repair the damage and to stimulate more myofibrils to grow. The more myofibrils in the cells, the stronger and bigger your muscles. Check out my myofibrils. (laughs) Okay, I got... (laughs) But listen, 
this growth only comes if you rest the muscles. As Christians, we must learn to rest in the work of Christ. Daily we come to the cross, and we come and we acknowledge that on the cross, he took all the pain that we deserve. What what does this do to us? Well, it humbles us. It strips away our haughtiness, our self-sufficiency, and our quest for independence. It causes us to lay aside our side hustles, at least for a day. These hustles that detract us from longing for Christ and his kingdom to be formed in us and through us. And then we rest. And when we rest, what happens? Many good things. I think the first is when we rest, we're no longer restless. We no longer need the outward adornment like beauty, clothing, cars, Instagram likes. Because a beauty and glory only God can give grows in us like muscles. And the more we rest, the less we chase after our side hustles. We confess we don't just want God's acceptance, but we long for his transformation as well. That's what resting produces in us. Grace Church, the more we rest in the cross of Christ, the more beauty and glory are built up in us. And because Christ has written his name upon us, we can put down our Sharpies. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that your salvation, it's your idea. You are tender and merciful. You are good to even draw your people into suffering so that we can see how foolish we are to keep you at arm's length. Today, in this hour, in this moment, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we confess that we need you close in and personal. And for this week, we confess We need you up close. We need you to move in, not down the block. We we adore your acceptance, but we also long for your transformation. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.